Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. And today I'm joined by Tony Norfield, author of The City, London and the Global Power of Finance, out now with Verso. Welcome to the show, Tony. Uh, Tony, maybe we could start the show with you telling listeners a little bit about yourself and the journey you've taken over the last decade, how you've come to have the opinions you currently have. Um, well, the opinions I have now are similar in content to what I've had for a very long time. I, I've been an anti-capitalist for all my adult life. And basically, in the past 10 years or so, I've, uh, I, when I finished my job in the city, I decided to take into account what was really going on there and try to explain it to people who are uh, normally a bit baffled. You find this to be true not simply on the side of many uh, left-wing people who don't like what's going on, but even quite a lot of people who are pro-capitalist don't really understand a lot of the details of how the city actually works. A few years ago, I wrote an article on the derivatives markets, um, which got a fair amount of coverage explaining the role of financial derivatives in the capitalist system. And then I decided to, to do a PhD, which was around the topic of British imperialism and finance, looking especially at the past 30 years. So that's um, the kind of background. I, I'm interested really in explaining what's really going on and how the system works, rather than necessarily just to point out terrible things that are happening, often which people can see, but often they can't really see logic behind it. And so for more or less 20 years before starting that PhD, yeah. you're working in the city. You started more or less around the time of the Big Bang, didn't you? You were doing stuff yeah. before that, but then working in the city proper, it was really when things were taken off 86, 87. Yeah, that's right. I had a couple of jobs before the city one in economic consultancies because I'd, I'd done economics degrees and I needed jobs. It made sense to move from those jobs into uh, things that are expanding in the city. I, I got a a job in Bank of America International's dealing room, which was a bit of a shock. That was in 1987. And the interesting thing was to find the contradiction between my own conception of how these things worked. You know, here I was thinking that I consider myself a Marxist and know about Marx's theory of capital, this kind of thing. And then you think, well, how do I apply it to what's going on here? Of course, I, I wouldn't be talking in the dealing room about how to apply Marx's theory of value, but basically it, made, it put me up against a, a whole lot of phenomena that I had to slowly absorb, try to understand and make sense of. So that and jobs following on from that were um, very much on my mind. And how useful was... Marx as a framework to understand all the stuff you're going in there as a young man it's all really new phenomena things really taking off it was really a, a new step we were told anyway in the history of British finance did it feel like that the stuff you'd read prior to that really explained a lot of the stuff you were seeing firsthand or was there a sort of distance there going hold on this isn't this isn't what I thought it would be like really there was a distance because um, one of the sad things in a way is that during a lot of the post-war period, there hasn't been a great deal of development of Marxist theory to get the grips with modern-day capitalism. There have been a, a number of 
very important and useful works. But in particular, when it comes to the financial system, often there's just a simplistic view that, you know, these guys are parasites, um, you know, sucking money off uh, productive companies or foreign countries, etc., etc. And it fails to understand how the thing actually works. So I found that by traveling around, seeing different ways in which different kinds of capitalist companies, governments, other banks, financial institutions did various things, it, it gave me a much clearer notion of um, the mechanism as a whole. And so we'll talk about the book. It's a fantastic book. I read it about a month ago, then I went through it again last night. Really, really wonderful. Um, real contribution to a growing literature about financialization, but like you say, from a very different angle. Um, I want to talk about, I guess, what you're saying, Viz, of course, the, the kind of language, the kind of messaging coming from Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. But primarily, your major point is you're saying that Britain still exercises a certain influence in the world. This is still kind of um, deployed primarily through the city. Imperialism is still a thing. So how does the city intersect with uh, British imperialism and its new role in the world? Because we're constantly told it's a second-rate power, it's a medium power. The reading here is that it's not. I mean, when it comes to its place in the world, its place in the global financial architecture, is very much a first-rate power. Yeah, there there are many many dimensions of this and to the power of a big capitalist country. Obviously, in terms of the size of the UK economy, it is a second-tier power, no question about it. It's only about 20% the size of the American economy. But when you look at the... Um, more financial aspects of the UK economy, you get a different perspective. For example, the city is the biggest hub for international financial dealing in terms of borrowing and lending by banks. It's bigger than America's because a lot of American business is focused internally because the US economy is so big. But the main hub of dealing in the US dollar internationally is done in London, not in New York. And similarly, you find um, in foreign exchange dealing or dealing in financial derivatives, a huge amount of that takes place in, in the city. But the point I would make is that the, it's not as if there's um, just a bunch of banks, financial institutions, which are sitting separately from the rest of the UK economy. Because the thing is that all big capitalist corporations are very much intertwined and uh, involved in doing financial deals. And it may be that the city doesn't really do many of those deals. The companies are doing it off their own back with other financial companies or between themselves not even using financial companies. So I'm, I'm looking at the role of the financial system as an outgrowth of the way that capitalism works today not as something which grows separately from, um, you know, the normal way of viewing it of uh, a number of productive large corporations who run many parts of the world economy. One of the really interesting insights here, and it, you know, it's a great explanation for a shortcoming in the British economy that's existed for decades. Nobody talks about it. Is of course, our, of course, our trade deficit. So, can you talk about the city's role briefly? and why Britain can get away with this big trade deficit it has with the rest of the world, particularly in goods. I mean, it's just ginormous. Yeah, the, the trade deficit in visible goods, as they call it, is about £120 billion. Huge amount, about 7% of GDP. 
but more than half that deficit is offset by financial earnings of the city on financial dealing, insurance revenues, and then you should also really add in um, other legal uh, earnings, etc., etc., which are often very much closely related to financial dealing. This shows that the the city's operations are actually far more important to the way the British economy works and the way it pays its way than you would think. And even if you say, well, okay, that's only half the gap, well, the other half of the gap is made up by borrowing money from the rest of the world system. And the city is very good at doing that. So the the city is very important indeed from the point of view of um, the viability of British capitalism. And it has great links in with the rest of the world economy. In particular, I think you could probably characterise it as saying that uh, the city is the broker for the world capitalist economy. It, it plays a role of um, transacting deals that all kinds of people, all kinds of governments, all kinds of companies all around the world do. And as every transaction comes into and out of the city, they, they get a small cut of that deal. Well, this sounds wonderful. If you're a domestic bourgeoisie, that sounds like an amazing card to play. You can get away with huge trade deficits and so on. The US clearly has a very similar thing going on, but the US was the world's preeminent power for 1945. Two-thirds of the world, gold reserves and nuclear weapons and taking you know islands off the UK and new air bases. Why did it allow the UK to still have this really eminent centre of power in the global economy that is the city of london well the the history is interesting here because in 1944 1945 uh, discussions around setting up the Bretton woods system the u.s did try to plan that uh, new york would take over the role of the city because the city then was at the center of a british empire uh, dealing system had a huge amount of power um, after the second world war britain was basically broke and didn't really have the funds to lend out to anybody and actually was borrowing a great deal of money from the Americans uh, to help set up the health service and everything else. And what later happened was that the city, while not being able to offer funds to other countries or companies because it didn't really have them, it was still in a very strong role in transaction terms. And at the same time, in the US, there had been from the 1930s a lot of restrictions on US banks because of the um, long depression in the 30s. And that was something that didn't exist in the same way in the city. The glass eagle and so on. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And the, the other trick, if you like, which the um, British capitalists learned was when they could no longer really use sterling, because, um, again, Britain was broke, um, they became the biggest dealing hub for the US dollar. And they had the network, a much bigger international network than the US had, in order to do that. So... I would say that the 1945 kind of period and the five, ten years after that was a period of transition from Britain being formerly, you know, 50 years earlier as the big financial centre of the world to being more of a, a dealing hub using, um, using US dollars in particular. Because the growth of the euro markets in Britain from really began in Britain, although, of course, it was in a num number of other countries too, but that was from the late 1950s. And that... That was a big part of the post-war boom in financial activity, which actually was well before the Thatcher period of 1979. Because that's the historic line, isn't it? That people say, after 1945, huge majority for new Clement Attlee government, formation of different kind of welfare state, 
ultimately the end of a, a British empire. What you're saying is that actually it was put on, British capitalism put itself onto a different footing pretty quickly and that this wasn't a really progressive state socialist thing to do. It was an adaptation to a different paradigm, American hegemony. But it still meant that Britain could advance its own interests pretty expertly in the world and still exploit underdeveloped economies elsewhere pretty well. Well, there are a couple of things in the early period that not many people are aware of. One is that... um, I think it was about 1945, yeah, 45 rather than 44 or 46. Britain borrowed 20% of GDP. Uh, Half of it was from the Americans, and in those days that was about a billion dollars. The other half was essentially ripped off from the colonies using the sterling area um, balances. These were the funds... This was under a Labour government? Under a Labour government, yeah. So 45, 50 Labour government. So... These funds were used to finance the setting up of the health service and the welfare system generally. And so essentially, the the origins of the British welfare state are in huge loans, one from American imperialism and the other from British colonies. There's um, there's an interesting anecdote I was reading about, well, vignette, not an anecdote, about this. And it was saying that obviously BP in its previous incarnation was um, Anglo-Iranian, Anglo-Persian oil. They paid more to the exchequer in tax than they were paying to the Iranian government to get the stuff out of the ground. And I presume that was a dynamic that was ongoing with a whole bunch of concerns that were operating, you know, obviously outside of the UK and in the global south. Yeah, there's an example I gave in the book where under the Labour government you had... um from 1945 until the early 50s, so it continued in with the Conservatives after, that they had um, colonial marketing boards which set the prices that they would pay for the products coming out of, um, say, West Africa. So it could have been cocoa, it could have been a a bunch of other commodities. And they were more or less paying them half price. So the the world market price set on the uh, exchanges was, say, $1,000 a tonne. It's less than that, but let's say $1,000, and they were paying them $500. And that was essentially a direct subsidy from the colonies into British living standards in that period. And that lasted for about 10 years or so. And so does that, clearly the demise of that system, does that also impact somewhat then the, the demise of British welfare state to be able to reproduce itself towards the mid to late 1960s? Could that be sort of that? Is, is that correlative with the end of empire? Even in the 1950s, it was becoming clear to the British ruling class that the empire connection or what became the Commonwealth connection was not so profitable. And you had a much faster growth of West European capitalism. So they wanted to get involved in that. But they were in a tricky position because they didn't want to mess up relationships with, say, Australia, Canada, New Zealand uh, at the same time. Basically, um, there were debates, which is ironic that having the same debates in many ways now, and uh, also had in the 1970s over Brexit and everything, um, <clears throat> there were debates about whether to orientate towards Europe or whether to um, depend upon the empire. And you know, what looked like by far the better bet at that point was to orientate towards Europe. But it took quite a long time to do it, partly with a transitional period, and also because the Europeans, most especially under the Gaulle, were not so happy about having Britain as part of the uh, early group of countries uh, being involved in um, what was then the EEC. And it was largely because the, the Europeans were trying to set up a political project to act as a counterweight to America. If you don't have any money, 
you know, you're not really independent. So basically, they were trying to set up um, an economic system that would be on a big enough scale to compete with American um, large companies and have a domestic market something of the order of the size of the American domestic market. So that inevitably implied some kind of unification of economic uh, policies. And um, they were suspicious of uh, the British role at that time because Britain had so many uh, security, economic, etc., etc., links with the Americans. And Britain, yeah, I think the rejection of uh, Britain's first membership took place in about 1962 or 63, and it was only in about the year before that Britain had signed the Polaris missile deal with the Americans. So I guess back to the sort of key key part of the book, um, you've already touched upon it. You said it's mistaken to counterpose a more productive variant of capitalism, industrial capitalism, forwardist capitalism, with a sort of parasitic, financialized capitalism that we see emerge primarily after the mid-1970s. That's the story. You have the sort of end of the gold standard, 71, oil crisis. By the mid to late 70s, it's clear that something has to give and you have a political project compound that obviously with Thatcher and Reagan. You're saying it's not as simple as that, right? There's a bit of, you know, you could go on for hours about this, but a brief, brief version of the story is that um, already by the 1960s, it was pretty clear that a lot of um, British business was not that competitive worldwide. Um, they'd been used to having relatively... Why, why pre- well, they had relatively protected empire markets. And there are even cases, of funny kind of anecdotes you hear, that there'd be a communication from an African country as part of the empire saying, you know, please, can we have some Land Rovers? Uh, you know, we'd like 50 Land Rovers or something. And then maybe the the British office wouldn't even bother to reply or say, no, we'll only give you 20. You know, just really, they're used to taking it easy on the back of protected empire links. So that, that happy, secure aspect obviously didn't last that long. Although British companies were very big in other countries too, there's a huge amount of foreign direct investment. Um, the domestic British economy was not that competitive. So it led, first of all, in the mid-late 1960s to under the Wilson government, the Labour government of 64 to 70, to try and have a big industrial policy to improve productivity, which turned out to be a big mess and just lots of subsidies to um, different uh, parts of British industry. Then the the Heath government coming in, I think in 1970, for a few years uh, under Conservatives, they thought, well, okay, that didn't work. Let's try the harsh um, discipline of the market. And part of that harsh discipline of the market was to join the EEC to force Britain to become more competitive. Even they changed their policy by about 1973 or so because there was a huge rise in unemployment. Um, well, I say huge, it was huge for those times. It's not huge in terms of today's uh, numbers. And then um, more attempts at uh, versions of nationalisation, restructuring industry, etc., etc. They were basically failing. And I think if there was a strategy on the part of the British ruling class, and there are many different conflicting interests, probably the one that made sense for them was to build upon a business that seemed to at least be working and making some money, which is a lot of the financial system business. So they quickly became the centre of the euro markets. And although it took until 1979 before exchange controls were taken off, 
That was kind of possible because that was the beginnings of North Sea oil in Britain, um, beginnings of the, the production from only low levels to quite bigger levels later. And the Conservatives could gamble then on taking away foreign exchange controls, allowing uh, foreign investment of capital to get better returns on capital. So that's what they did. You could almost say that Britain's turn to financialization, big turn in the mid 80s, it can almost be rooted in a history of never really having an sort of an effective industrial strategy because we were the world's biggest imperial power, this colonial exploiter. It meant it never had to be competitive. It never had to have a domestic sort of products that were, you know, really stand up to competitors in Germany, United States and whatnot. And that's never really resolved is what you're saying. And that finally, British capitalism finds a way of finding pretty decent profits, returns by going into insurance, finance, because it can't really, it can't get its industrial um, actors up to up to scratch, up to the same standards as the Japanese, the Germans, the French, the Americans. Well, it, every major power has a bunch of different options. You know, some look better than others. And for a long time, even, actually, even in the 19th century, uh, as some historians have pointed out, during a lot of the time when people would say Britain was the workshop of the world, um, they amusingly made the point that it was more accurately cast as the warehouse of the world. So rather than making a load of stuff, they were importing a whole lot of commodities and things from other places and running the world shipping and maritime trade. And, you know, so London, Liverpool, Glasgow, etc., were almost warehousing places, which gave lots of commercial uh, jobs, lots of jobs in uh, insurance, in different forms of trade finance, etc., etc. So all of the so-called financial things, which look very separate from producing anything, are just the, the capitalist market dimensions <clears throat> of underlying hardcore production, if you like. That you could say, well, um, you know, here I am making the best cars in the world, but how do you finance the cars? How do you manage the foreign exchange risk? Um, can you borrow money for the investments? Uh, where are the shares uh, quoted on which stock exchange, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Is there an insurance policy you need to have? Is the transport of these goods, et cetera, et cetera? And the competitive advantage that the, the Brits had, based upon the strength of the empire, was in a lot of these more commercial financial dimensions. Whereas, again, as I mentioned earlier, that in the US, the the international dimensions took a bit longer to get going. And, um, you know, many US banks, it has a much bigger banking system domestically than the British one, but most of their banks are focused on internal business. Many, many banks in the US are not even tied into the Federal Reserve banking system because they're dealing with downtown Ohio or something like that. And uh, obviously there are big banks like uh, Citigroup, JP Morgan, etc., etc., who who are... But um, the core of their business uh, used to be just the domestic um, large U.S. economy. I mean, there was a hell of a lot of these banks before the late '80s crisis, wasn't there? And there's a hell of there's not as many as there used to be, but this used to be a big, big part of American capitalism, wasn't it? These kinds of banks. Yeah, well, they they've had a, a more ruthless attitude in in America to um, drawing a conclusion from crises that uh, say bank shares you know, go to zero more or less. They get uh, restructured, taken over and merged. And in the 2008 crisis, for example, you know, they got rid of Merrill Lynch, they got rid of uh, Lehman Brothers and they got rid of Bear Stearns. 
you know, by either letting them go bust or having them merge with other... But not AIG. So what's the... So because that people would say, well, they screwed up. They didn't... They, what they did to AIG, they should have done earlier on. But you would say that that's an incorrect analysis. Well, the, the Federal Reserve is not really responsible for AIG per se, because it's an insurance company. So they couldn't do the same kind of thing as they could do with um, managing the mergers of banks. Um, and they did save AIG. They, they had a problem if uh, anything more went wrong. And the AIG trouble occurred on the same weekend as the Lehman trouble. So they had quite a lot on their plate in just a few days, basically. <laughs> and, and actually, that's, that's one reason, I think, why, um, why Lehman's was allowed to go bust. They, they couldn't handle all this stuff happening more or less in the same weekend. So going back to your point about British capitalism, even at the end of the 19th century, huge amounts of value were in what we would think of as services. Now, a lot of people say, oh, you know, we used to be the workshop of the world, like you say. And then George Osborne in 2010 says, we're going to march the makers, go back to, back to our roots. What you're saying is that even at its most eminent, even when UK GDP was number one in the world, which wasn't for that long, by the way. I know you know that. I'm saying something. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Even then, services were a huge part of the economy. I mean, Marx talks about this, right? You know, he talks about how, yeah, you know, there is the industrial proletariat, but there are far more people working as housekeepers, groundsmen, you know, in, in care, in social care, and all kinds of care jobs for, for the elite. But there's a, there is a common misconception, isn't there? That wasn't the case. That 150 years ago, everybody was working in a factory or in, you know, potteries in Stoke or steel in Sheffield. But you're saying, actually, that's not the story of British capitalism at its zenith. Yeah, that, that's true. Well... For a short period of time, it was true that, you know, Britain had the biggest sectors of industry, producing more than anybody else in all kinds of things, but it didn't last that long. Um, as other innovations in steelmaking or, you know, building railways and all that, they, they would get spread around the world and other people would do it as well. So to an extent, you can protect certain parts of industry with, you know, patents and that sort of thing, but then you're going to get... Uh, competition of other countries from Germany from France from America and America in particular had a huge domestic market so they had more um, scope for dominating the world market in that respect but the the point I would make about um, developments especially in the past 30 or so years and this is covered by a friend of mine's book uh, John Smith who's got a book out just now from monthly review on imperialism is that many of the companies you think make things actually don't. You know, it's famous with uh, Apple, for example, that it probably hardly makes anything. There's a whole bunch of components put together by people outside of the Apple system, you know, made by um, South Koreans, uh, assembled by Chinese, done in Taiwan, done it, et cetera, et cetera, in, in all kinds of different countries. And in economics terms, they often, use, they often call this a supply chain, and quite often a company that you think is this big industrial company, actually it's got a headquarters, you know, in, uh, in Berlin, in London or Paris or something. But most of the production is often occurring in poor, low-wage countries. So this brings out, in particular, I think, it's probably a good example to bring out how what you think of as an industrial company is as much a financial company in the sense that it's very much tied in with doing all kinds of deals between a wide range of suppliers, a wide range of uh, people in its marketing sphere, et cetera, et cetera. And we talk about Nike a lot on the show. And Nike's a classic one, right? You know, hugely valuable company. Market capitalization is just astronomical. I think it's like, I don't know. It's just in terms of its ratio to its you know, annual time, I mean, it's just unbelievable, um, nonsensical. 
And then, of course, they own none of the fixed capital, none of the factories, none of the distribution networks. What do they own? They own the philosophy, which is the marketing and also you know research and development but other than that there is nothing there is nothing to Nike like you say absolutely the same with Apple there's also another aspect though isn't there of so General Motors for instance the most profitable aspect of General Motors for a very long time has been its financing arm GMAC so is that quite is that another thing that's very sort of pronounced throughout these big companies is or is that a bit of a rarity it's a bit unusual um it's the same with General Electric and General Motors. They've had financial arms, often to act as financing the purchases of their goods, etc., etc. Um, it tends not to happen that much in that specific kind of way where you can point to what is obviously a financial labelled thing, you know, General Motors something financial. Um, I, I think more typical is where you have... Um, Big companies, and often you don't even know the name of the company, you just know the brand name at which the goods are sold, where they have a a wide range of products, again, made by other people, but go under their brand name. If you take Primark, for example, it's owned by, guess what, Associated British Foods. You think, you know, what the hell has Rivita and bread got to do with the stuff that Primark sells? Well, Primark obviously doesn't make the things themselves. They get the cheap goods in from Asia in particular and then sell them to the Brits. You know, and, and actually they've got operations in many different countries. So the um, the conglomerate structure of a company like Primark and, sorry, like ABF and many, many others involves a huge amount of um, financial transactions, corporate takeovers, mergers, issuing bonds and equities, restructuring this, that and the other. And it's, you know, they are not banks, but they're as financial as you could expect, as, as you could uh, ever think they could be. You say that imperialism is the present stage of capitalism. Can you unfold that slightly? I'm borrowing that from Lenin. This is 100 years ago now, yeah. but you don't think that much has changed? Well, things have changed, but it's, um, you know, plus ça change and all that. Um, basically, uh, Lenin's view, I, I think it's ni- nicely put that, I think in a one-liner he said, if I had to give a, a simple one-line definition, I'd say imperialism is monopoly capitalism. And... I think that works pretty much today. If you look at the situation where for a lot of common products, you know, say take cars or, you know, many consumer goods in clothing or whatever, or, you know, beer, (laughs) all kinds of things, you find there are half a dozen companies who run 40, 50, 60% of world production in these things. And... One of the most extreme examples, actually, is take internet search engines. Google has got 70% of the world internet search engine market. So if that's not monopoly capitalism, I don't know what it is. But the interesting point to make about uh, imperialism is that it's not simply monopoly where you would get this notion of a big industrial company or a big commercial or financial company. It's the link of these huge corporations in with the power of the state. And it's the state's corporate link which, on the one hand, if you like, gives, gives the, um, the military dimensions whenever they're required. And it's also reflected in debates over international law, over trade deals, over patent rights, over who can use the dollar, who can't, who has sanctions on them, who doesn't, what kind of quid pro quo deal you're going to make the other guy do um, to let them into your market. So you, you have... Um, a confluence of um, 
state power and monopolistic interests, which is characteristic of imperialism today. You said search engines. I mean, Google has huge market share. Um, there is a, I can't, it's a German academic, no, it's a German writer. It's a German, it's a German tech blogger writing for the Spiegel a few years ago. I can't remember their name. And they talked about the emergence of what they call platform capitalism, which is where you have these companies whose entire revenue model is based upon effectively acting as, a, as you know, the only guy in the market. So Uber, TaskRabbit, Google, Facebook. You know, you can only hit the point of Facebook is you can only have one Facebook. That's why one billion people use it a day. So you're saying that imperialism is monopoly capitalism. That seems to intersect really nicely then, actually, with these new this new kind of capitalism or these yeah. these these tech companies, particularly around American capitalism, because a lot of people will say, you know, the late 90s, American capitalism was on its, on its knees. But it seems to me that these new companies that have come out, especially since the mid-noughties, you know, huge, huge companies, particularly Google and Facebook, seem, seem to have solidified its position. Yeah, I, I think that is an important phenomenon. There's, a, as you say, many people are speaking about this. But the um, thing is, it's... It's a version of what has happened anyway over the past hundred years or so, with um, especially exemplified by British commercial power. So, you know, uh, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Um, you know, the uh, it, it was the power of the British Navy and the British commerce, uh, commercial fleets, which was very important behind uh, trade finance revenues and all kinds of commercial revenues that, that the Brits earned. So, again, it wasn't purely financial in the sense of a bank was involved in it. What you have today, though, is very characteristic of the powerful capitalist countries, and in particular of America, but others are trying to get in on the act as well, where the further you're away from actually making anything, if instead you have a monopolistic power over the market, you know, um, either access to huge funding or you can afford to lose loads of money for a couple of years to make sure you get huge market share. Not Amazon, right? Yeah, never, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's true for a lot of the ones you, you just mentioned. Yeah. But the, the classic thing about them is that they, they more or less don't make anything. Um, okay, maybe Amazon makes warehouses, <laughs> you know, to put the stuff in. But um, they're um, buying and selling what other people have made. And you take, say, Airbnb, as far as I know, it doesn't own any hotels. You take Uber, as far as I know, it doesn't own any taxis. So instead, you have uh, a position where you can build a monopoly um, where everyone has to pay you a small cut. And if you have, say, pretty good software, then, you know, what seems like the odd dollar or pound or euro adds up to the billions. And it, it's something that is uh, probably more characteristic of the, the large American corporations now. But there have been some economists who pointed out that if you're involved in the um, anything to do with the actual assembly or production of things, you won't make much money you can get a more monopolistic position if you're into design and research, or at least that's part of your company and you protect it by patents like all the uh, pharmaceutical companies do. Or you're on the selling side and you can use your market power to drive down prices of things that you buy. So basically, the, the pre-production and post-production things are where they largely make their money. And... That's been the um, model of a lot of large corporations, which 
given um, the fluidity of technology and the easy scalability of it, you know, because you can, you get a bigger server, you can have a few million more hits. You know, it's not that much a bigger server. Whereas if you're you're making say one car and you have to make a million cars, you've got to have a million times the amount of light bulbs and seats and whatever. You know, so the scalability of this um, this co commercial aspect is really quite important. But the aspect that ties it all together is how is it financed, um, and how are the uh, how is the financial power of these companies expressed? And it's expressed through their share prices and their ability to um, take control over other companies. So obviously there have been examples of uh, Facebook buying WhatsApp. As I, the example I give in my book is, you know, WhatsApp made, made losses the previous couple of years before Facebook bought it. Facebook then did the deal for $20 billion or so. Most of the money was paid for with Facebook shares they had a few billion spare cash to hand over to the <laughs> to the um, WhatsApp people as well, but it showed the importance of um, share valuation as part of your financial power. And in that case, from the details I read, I don't think there are even any investment banks involved in the deal. It's more direct contact between the companies. So again, you know, why is it the horrible financiers versus the lovely producers? No, it's not like that at all. It's a very different situation that, that you have. Yeah. Britain's often viewed, at least on the left anyway, maybe not so much universally, as a lapdog of the United States, particularly, particularly, let's say, since Thatcher, I suppose, since 79, Thatcher, Reagan. There was seen to be, it wasn't always, of course, the case. The US weren't particularly helpful with the Falklands. There was seen to be a particularly strong relationship with the United States, but the UK clearly, unlike, say, 30 or 41 to 45, the UK was clearly not the subordinate partner. Your book's quite quite sort of keen to point out that when Britain chose to participate in intervention in Afghanistan or in Iraq, it shouldn't be viewed as either sort of monomaniacal Tony Blair, nor should it be viewed as, oh, the British establishment, the ruling elite now subordinates itself to the class interests of the American ruling class. You're saying it should be understood, actually, as the British state, the British elite, acting in its own self-interest. Could you go into that a little bit, particularly in relation to uh, military adventures since 9-11? Um, I, I think that the point to make is that Obviously, the US is the bigger power. You know, you'd be foolish to say anything else. Um, but just because Britain does something which is obviously in US interest doesn't mean to say it's not in British interest as well. They have very much um, a joint role. This has been true especially since um, 1945 or so. And even, um, you know, I'll give some more contemporary examples in a moment, but just to take the case of Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, right, in about 46 or so. This is after Churchill was Prime Minister. Um, but he, his Iron Curtain speech that he made in America was not to say there is this Iron Curtain coming down across uh, Europe and you have the nasty commies and we've got to fight them. It, the main logic in the speech was to do a deal with the Americans to have a joint... Um, military economic um, network to run the world 
Britain or the British ruling class at the time realised they couldn't do it anymore and they needed American power. And so that was the logic behind this thing there. Then Britain had a couple of um, incidents during, you know, during the 50s, in particular the, um, the Suez fiasco uh, where they um, tried to mess up uh, Egypt and NASA and ended up getting uh, slapped on the wrist by the Americans for this messing up of um, stability in that region. And from that point, really, they, the, the British ruling class saw that it had to pay more attention to doing deals with the Americans if they wanted to um, you know, get their own interests going in, in the world. So during the later period, there, there were all kinds of um, military cooperation I think there's a good case to argue, for example, that um, it was British forces or the British special forces like the um, paratroopers and whatever else uh, that were pretty good at burning down villages and massacring people. And they uh, played a role in educating the Americans about how to do that in Vietnam because they were used to jungle warfare and the Americans weren't. Kenya was a big example, but yes, they did it all over. Coming more to um, the more recent period, um, interesting to note that even before the 9-11 stuff, let's say take the early 90s and the first um, dispute with Iraq over them invading Kuwait, um, Iraq was under sanctions for 10 years or so before 2001 or, or the 2003 invasion. Um, and the Brits were not just going along with it, giving, say, a political cover for the Americans, although they do that, they very much wanted to do it themselves because they had, had their own view about we can't allow any uppity third-world dictator to step out of line. If they do, they might then choose to take over some of our stuff. So an example had to be made of Saddam, you know, whatever you think about him um, domestically, but an example had to be made of him to get rid of him, to stop anyone else having the same kind of idea. So the British were very, very much involved in that. And there are people like Scott Ritter who have written books on this um, to document um, the kinds of things that the, the British were doing. And... This is what made the whole WMD stuff about Saddam fires weapons off in 45 minutes even more absurd because the Brits and the Americans knew every square inch of Iraq. You know, Saddam could barely have farted without them knowing what, what was happening. But, I mean, what do you mean? I mean, they would be concerned that, what, Saddam would shut the Straits of Hormuz, would invade Bahrain? I mean, what would be... Because surely, I mean, there's other ways to do that, right? You just arm, which, they, which they're going to do, which they do, is arm these other little sort of kingdoms to the teeth. I mean, what, what particularly could Saddam have done by 2003 which would have undermined British interests in the region? Um, no, he could have done nothing, but they wanted to get rid of him. So they spent all that time trying to undermine his position and starving Iraqis, you know, hundreds of thousands of um, people having dreadful things done to them in, in, in Iraq. And this was part of a punishment. You know, anyone who steps out of line, this is what you're going to get, right? So you don't do it again. So going to more sort of recent, more recent affairs with the Iranians. Now clearly they're the sort of they're the rising power in the region. 
did they try a similar thing with them? And that seems to have stopped, doesn't it? Now, now you've got these huge entourages of sort of Italian companies and Matteo Renzi going there and Rouhani going to Paris. And so what's the story then with with Iran? I think it's slightly different with Iran because um, it, Iran wants to get involved in uh, the world economy, is in big trouble domestically, economically speaking at least, and would like to open up and get more money and help rebuild their economy after you know damaging sanctions for many years. And the Europeans look upon it as, oh, actually, it's quite funny because um, the American Congress will be much more opposed to American business getting involved. And therefore, there's a bigger opening for the Europeans to go in. So the Brits have not been that quick on doing it, but most of the, of the Europeans have. So there's a lot of openings for profitable European deals in Iran. And because of their politics, the Americans are in a more tricky situation. Um, you know, the, the financial sanctions in particular um, meant that it's very difficult for American companies to organise any, uh, any investment deals with Iran. So we've got just over 10 minutes left here on Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. My name's Aaron Mastani. I'm joined by Tony Norfield. Great new book out with Verso. Check it out. The blog you mentioned at the, the top of the show, Tony, we'll put that in the links, I think. We'll put that in the notes. This is from, where was this? That was published in uh, an academic journal called Historical Materialism. And um, I, I've written some, some similar things on my blog and uh, I think the understandable bits, or the more understandable bits in the, in the book as well on that. But um, yeah, th- this was one example of how uh, a common view that financial derivatives have blown up the world if only we stop these guys doing this everything would be okay and you know i i was putting the whole financial derivative development in the context of a broader crisis that the major countries are going through and how not not denying that financial speculation doesn't make things worse i mean it obviously does make things worse but all it's done really is a the metaphor I would use is that it it stretches the relationship between what money people think they have and what they have really produced. And then that's all fine until it isn't fine. We we often talk on the show about the rise of fire industries, finance, um, insurance, real estate. And I've often located it, the last couple of years, I've located this global turn towards these industries, particularly Britain and the United States. Um, as a response to a particular kind of capitalist crisis in the late 60s, the early 1970s, a crisis of profitability. Wages were simply too high in relation to profits, to you know, capitalism, as we often say. You know, it's based, capitalists don't produce things because they want to produce things because they're nice, because they want to give workers jobs. It's because they want to create commodities for a profit. And when that's not plausible, then obviously the system can't sustain itself. That was in jeopardy, particularly in the UK, particularly in the US, late 60s, uh, late 60s, let's say. What you're adding here, and we've never said this before on this show, is you're saying that there's also an imperialist context here for the UK, where it was a, a unique kind of capitalism, I suppose, in the context of Western Europe anyway, and that its products and its industries just weren't competitive once it did, you know, it didn't have the kind of the sort of you know play play the hand it wanted to play with regards to colonial markets. The point I would make is that it's important not to say that um, Britain has got a bunch of banks and finance companies and nothing else works. That's not true. There are large British corporations. Uh, Britain has 
second largest amount of foreign direct investment, for example, big pharmaceuticals, weapons companies, etc., etc. So it's got quite a lot of big corporations that are competitive in the world economy. So it's not as if everything has collapsed apart from some, you know, bunch of financial companies. But it's nevertheless true that um, a lot of um, ways that the Britain has developed has been, you know, what seemed to make more easy money. And um, not having the huge domestic market, say, that the, um, that the Americans have meant that probably there was slightly less scope for some of the Google-related things to get. Do you think that's the reason why America now has Amazon, Facebook, Google, yeah. and Europe doesn't, because it has this massive domestic market? Which... I, I think it's an important factor, yeah. I mean, no doubt there are all kinds of other things too. Um, and... Um, there was a program on with Julian Assange on uh, the one channel the other day where he pointed out pretty close links between um, the American security services and Google, you know, and th that would involve a lot of um, financial assistance, cooperation, et cetera, et cetera. So what appear to be these um, innovative, you know, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful kind of independent companies, quite often they're relying upon state support whether it be, uh, you know, the CIA or whether it be some other kind of assistance. So this kind of issue is a big deal on the part of many major countries and they're giving uh, support to try and develop these sorts of things in their own economies as well. But again, if you're a huge market, you can do it more easily. And to take the example of China, uh, you have the Alibaba set up, which is... I don't think Amazon plays much of a role in China, but Alibaba could well grow outside of China uh, elsewhere. And many huge mobile phone companies as well, they've bought in a lot of Western technology and are developing their own. And they're becoming very big uh, producers of cheaper smartphones. So it's by no means a static situation. And uh, as I say, you, you've got to look at the several dimensions of this. It's not only one thing going on. And... In any particular country, there'd be different angles that they would try. Last couple of minutes. So the whole critique that's, you know, it runs right throughout the book is, you know, you can't extricate industrial capitalism from finance capitalism. You can't say we want to go back to the good old days before we had all this stuff, because this stuff is tied up with, you know, I suppose you'd say the second industrial revolution, right? It's there from the 1870s, 1860s, maybe earlier. What politically then can be the response? You have somebody like a Bernie Sanders, 500,000 volunteers behind this guy, Jeremy Corbyn. 60% of registered supporters, affiliate members and party members voting for this guy. Huge mandates for these, well, for Jeremy Corbyn and a huge movement behind Bernie Sanders. But their message is pretty clear, isn't it? They say, look, we want to, well, Sanders says, we need to clamp down on Wall Street to help out Main Street. And for you, that's a limited analysis. So what, what could he say or what could he do that would be more productive? Firstly, I would say that the support given to, say, Sanders or Corbyn or whoever else in different countries. You know, you have um, um, Syriza as was, and you have Podemos, etc., etc. There's, there's a lot of discontent, but how that discontent is expressed politically varies quite a bit between different countries. And for people to be annoyed with the government or annoyed with big business or looking at inequality and not liking that... I think the, you know, that, that's obviously great if they don't like it. That at least shows there's a pulse, right? you know, on the part of people, you know, surely you can't like what's going on. It's a dreadful uh, way the economy runs. But the thing on my mind to counter is 
an easy falling into a populism that pretends the problem is something different. Because, um, you know, if, if there were, if you fight for regulation of banks, like, you know, frankly, I don't care if you regulate banks or not, but I don't think that's the problem. It's not banks or finance being the problem. It's the way the capitalist economy works. And then it brings out all kinds of other details. So the example I was giving uh, before about, you know, um, Britain's imperial position, meaning that it could have even afforded the welfare state in the first place. And today you find a lot of people opposed to policies governments may do, but Often it's from a national welfareism perspective, and I think that's quite important to counter because, you know, if you're talking about, say, steel jobs being lost, therefore you should have controls on Chinese imports or something. Well, are you really saying that Chinese workers should lose their jobs rather than others? Why don't you instead fight for people's jobs and their rights and, and all kind of other things to prevent uh, people being attacked by uh, capitalist companies or the government or whatever, rather than pointing to the enemy abroad. But Corbyn and Sanders don't say that so much. Trump does. Trump would say, look, we need to bring back jobs. We'll have tariffs. You know, if they want to move to Mexico, well, they can sell their stuff here, but we'll put 35% tax on it or whatever. There does seem to be amongst this, this new left politics, there is an awareness of that. I mean, they're not just saying, yeah, Br Br I mean, Gordon Brown said it for about 10 minutes in 2009, 10. British jobs for British workers, and it went down like a sack of potatoes. So people are a bit smarter than that, or is that your major concern with these kinds of analyses? I think that's the way it could develop, though, because um, I've noticed that in um, in the way that a number of people have approached uh, the whole Brexit thing, for example, uh, you know, we don't have much time to talk about this, but the they look upon it as, you know, Britain having more ability to do what it likes rather than being bossed around by the EU or Brussels or whoever it is. And I would say that politically speaking, the most important point to get across is that the enemy is at home, not um, being uh, imposed from some external force. Because that so easily turns into something which becomes a progressive... Uh, a progressive nationalism, or I should say it tries to be a progressive nationalism. And uh, that's not a way to get uh, any solidarity between people. And I think if we recognise um, the privileged position that people in Britain have got and people in, you know, rich Western countries have got, you know, frankly, they've got a lot of explaining to do, you know, the things that they've done to all kinds of other countries over the years and they're still doing now. OK, no, I'll respond to that. OK, so that's, I mean... I agree with that. Listeners will probably know I'm, I'm for Brexit. So what would you say then to the response? If I said, well, we could have a, this is not your politics, this is not my politics, but I'm just saying, this is a, this is a potential path. It's not a likely path, but it's, it's pl much more plausible now than it was this time last year. More plausible now than it's been for 20, 30 years, right? You know, you get a Labour-led coalition government after 2020, and then they try and remake the international financial institutions, the Security Council. I mean, Britain does have, because of its history... A certain amount of leverage outside of the EU that it doesn't necessarily have inside the EU. So it would negotiate at the level of the WTO, it would no longer be delegating that competence to the European Commission, right? But you don't buy that as an argument that, you know, a left government with Britain could renegotiate certain trade agreements directly with the Global South. You don't think that's a plausible... Well, I, I, I don't think it's plausible, but as I say, I, I'm, I'm stepping out of the debate about what's the best, best policy for British capitalism and instead saying... Um, 
if you look at how capitalism works and Britain's role in it, you get a much clearer notion of the political interests involved and what you should be opposed to. And I think that, um, you know, if there were a big progressive movement in this country, then yes, we could have um, interesting debates on this. But then the question is, how would you generate one? And that some people think, well, it's by inserting yourself into a, a left-wing leadership around the Labour Party. I, I think it's a completely upside-down um, way of doing something because you, you can't give people... Um, you can't insert in people's brains um, a view they don't have. You can try and persuade people, put arguments across... And that's what I'm doing in the book, and that's what I've done in other things I've written. But if the mass of people don't want to do it, there's not a lot you can do about it. Let's take just the uh, example of the general election. You know, half the voters voted for UKIP or the Conservatives. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. It's frightening. Although, you know, incidentally, amongst under 45s, Labour won. So there's a big, you know, we know that obviously over 45s are much more likely to vote. Um, but uh, I think 18 to 24s, Labour and Greens get 51%. Similar thing going on with Indy Ref. It was young people overwhelmingly wanted out for a particular... It wasn't like a petty nationalism. We, again, you could criticise it, but there's clearly a generational cleavage going on in terms of... you know, I, I, just, I, I question the scalability of UKIP, for instance, just because it's limited to the over-60s, really, as a politics, or the over-50s, let's say. I question its scalability. Well, it's um, hard to say because you, you've got... Um a similar kind of movements in a lot of uh, Northwest Europe. And in terms of, say, voting Labour, you know, one of the key items on their, on the Edstone and also in their, um, their policies was controls and immigration, right? So they've had reactionary policies um, supporting British wars forever. And, you know, I, I think why would anybody in their right mind vote for the Labour Party? Right. I, I think if you uh, want to build something different, then you would uh, challenge people's understanding of the world today and where they think, you know, you know, show them where their interests really are, which are not going in that direction. On that note, Tony, thank you very much. This has been Navarra FM. My name's Aaron Bastani. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.